Okay, so anyone who knows me, and honestly, at this point, anyone who listens to the podcast, because I guess we've just (laughs) gotten real close around here, knows that I do not wear bras. And like, that's not some sort of an over-exaggeration. You can ask any of my friends. I truly do not ever wear bras. However, there have recently been some circumstances where like, I just have to. I've been saying yes to more things. I feel like we've been going to more events and there are just some outfits. I got to do it. And when I tell you I have finally found a bra that makes wearing one bearable. Like I'm never going to be an everyday bra wearer. It's not in the cars for me. But when I have to, the only bras I can wear are skims, which I'll get into the specific ones in a second, but we all know this comes as no surprise. Like I have been an OG diehard skims fan since day one. I am a fan of every single product they make. You know the way I feel about the underwear, the clothes, all of it. But now adding bras to the mix, specifically the Fits Everybody t-shirt bra, because You guys know the way I feel about the Fits Everybody collection. I could talk about that for forever, but specifically the t-shirt bra, it's just so comfortable. I don't know, the straps don't dig into you. It's probably the only bra I've ever worn where when I get home, I'm not like dying to take it off, which I cannot express how massive of a feat that is for someone like me. It's just comfortable and it just does what it needs to do. And I am such a fan, which like no surprise, I love everything Skims makes, but here to confirm the bras are as good as you would think that they are. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A through 46H. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hi guys, I'm Emma. And I'm Julie. And we're the girls behind Comments by Celebs. And welcome back to another episode. Hey, Jewel. I am. Monday morning. I feel like we're both in really good moods today. I, it feels like a good Monday morning. I know. And I don't know why the second we got on, I could just go to hear it in your voice. And I was wondering like, how long has she been up for? Just did she have a lot of coffee? I was trying to figure out what the deal was. A little bit of both, but I'll tell you that I set an earlier alarm because I wanted to watch something that I didn't watch last night that I was supposed to for this. And when my alarm went off, I literally out loud was like, fuck. And then <laughs> as time went on, I was like, okay. And then I had like three cups of coffee already and I'm fine. Was it the Andy Cohen episode? Yeah. Wasn't it great? Yeah, amazing. I'm glad you watched it this morning because I watched it last night. I cannot wait to talk about that. So excited. Okay, shall we get into it? I think so. So as you guys know, every week we're highlighting a Black-owned business. And this week it's called Mumgry, M-U-M-G-R-Y. As always, I'll put all the information in the description. But basically, it was founded by this woman, Lillian, when she was pregnant with her second child and she was looking for healthy snacks. And they make these really unique nut butter. So like pistachio chocolate almond butter, chocolate peanut butter, things like that. Personally, for me, I'm a big nut butter person. So this very much appeals to me. And as always, all the information will be in the description. Okay. Anything else you'd like to mention or should we get into it? No, I think let's get into it. Okay. So as mentioned last week, we are going to start out by doing a full-blown timeline breakdown of everything that is happening in the world of David Dobrik. And first, I just want to give a trigger warning for sexual assault and rape because that will come up a little bit later on. And I also want to acknowledge that I get up, we're kind of playing to a couple different audiences here because some people are diehard YouTube watchers know everything and other people are messaging us saying they don't even know who he is. So I'm going to do my best as I go through this breakdown to kind of explain everything. You'd also do it in a way that's concise enough where it doesn't feel like over explanatory for those that know everything. But basically, David Dobrik first kind of became, I guess, popular in roughly 2015 when he started making his vlogs on YouTube. He started on Vine, but I think he really blew up, at least in my interpretation of it, 
on YouTube. He's from Illinois. He moved to LA with a couple of his friends from Illinois, who we will get into as the story progresses. And he ended up forming something called the Vlog Squad, which was a group of people that consisted of both people from his hometown and also friends that he made in LA. And he would do these styles of videos that were four minutes and 20 seconds, every single one that was his signature. And they were kind of a mix of like improv skits, some actual real life things that happened. And they were just quick comedy and they became really addicting to a lot of people. I mean, I fully will admit I was a very big vlog watcher. He hasn't posted one in a while, but at the time, I mean, that was something that we would watch consistently. I wouldn't even try to deny that, right? No, of course not. As with most people though. Yeah, no. I mean, a lot of people became so kind of glued to the content because it was so quick, it was so digestible and it was fun. And they were doing these things that at times seemed a little bit crazy or something you couldn't imagine yourself doing, yet it almost was like as they progressed, he had more and more money. And so it was kind of like, I think you've described it as this. It was if you gave like a 13-year-old a million dollars, right? They would do these crazy pranks, like filling the backyard with foam or stuff that sounds really stupid when you're watching it actually was fun to watch. At least for me, it was. Right. So all of this kind of started to unravel and different allegations came out roughly within the last month or so. And the start date that a lot of articles point to is February 5th. So that's what we're going to use for this episode. And that was when Seth, who was a former Vlog Squad member, went on the H3 podcast, which is hosted by Ethan and Ela Klein. Just as a side note, Ethan is Trisha's co-host for the podcast Frenemies, which I'm sure we'll mention at some point in this. And in it, Seth basically speaks about his experience with sexual assaults within the Vlog Squad, saying that he was touched by someone he did not consent to. And what he's referring to is a vlog that was titled, He Thought He Was Kissing Her, Super Cringy. Basically what happened in that video was it was a prank and a setup where he went in thinking he was kissing Corinna, who was a former member of the Vlog Squad. She's this beautiful woman. And it really was Jason Nash, who is this like 45-year-old guy. And that's kind of the experience that he was speaking to in this podcast. He's also spoken kind of just about some of the experiences with racism that he endured while in the Vlog Squad because a lot of their earlier videos, including him, I think the butt of the joke was race a lot of times. And he even said, you know, at the time he was kind of consenting to it, but looking back, he realizes how not okay that was and how impacted he was by all of that. So in a lot of these articles, the main focus is more so the sexual assault claim, but I think the elements of race were also included and should be mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. So on March 4th, which was about a month after this, because since then, you know, there was a lot of heat on the internet and it was really kind of picking up speed. And Scotty Sire, who is, I guess, currently a Vlog Squad member, he's a longtime friend of David, he uploaded this video titled Hi. And in it, he was basically just defending David. And one of the things that he did in his defense was he showed messages between David and Seth, where Seth appeared to be offering consent for the incident. I think what happened was when he uploaded the video, he kind of thought that he was giving the ultimate flex, kind of like the ultimate fuck you, I'm going to prove to you why your story is bullshit. And what he didn't realize at the time was that it really just came across as kind of like victim blaming. So not getting the response he wanted, he deleted it, he posted an apology, but that was kind of significant. And the reason I mention it here is because that was the first time anyone within the vlog squad had even spoken at all to any of these allegations because Trisha, who, as you know, formerly dated Jason Nash in the vlog squad, she's a very bad relationship with Jason and David and pretty much all of them has kind of been pushing this narrative for a while. And so 
none of them have ever responded to that. So for Scotty to even respond to Seth was almost like breaking down a wall in a way because it showed that they were potentially going to respond to some of these allegations. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah. Like, I don't want to say the floodgates open from that in terms of communication lines, but it definitely opened the door for both sides to be brought to the table rather than one side and one side just refusing to acknowledge or respond. Right. Exactly. And I think that that was also a big thing that people always were wondering. And everybody that's spoken about it has always said in their videos what the case was, because I think a lot of people thought that there was this strict rule if you were within the vlog squad that you weren't allowed to speak up and David was not allowing you to. And they've all basically come out and said that that's not the case, those people that are currently involved. And so everybody that came out did so kind of on their own accord, which we will get into later on with Jeff and things like that. But in my opinion, and I guess it's a little more nuanced, like if you know nothing about the situation, you wouldn't really understand why Scotty speaking on it, even though he did so very incorrectly, would come across as a big deal. But for me, I remember thinking, oh shit, this means more people are going to address it. Right. Yes. So two things now happen on March 16th. The first is this Business Insider article coming out. And again, I just want to give a trigger warning for sexual assault and rape because it gets a little bit more graphic here. So this article was by Kat Tenbard. It was titled, A woman featured on YouTube star David Dobrik's channel says she was raped by a Vlog Squad member in 2018, the night they filmed a video about group sex. And basically, the author spoke to this woman who was being named Hannah, who participated in this video in 2018. And let me just kind of explain for a second what happened again. I know some people are very familiar with this, but others aren't. So one of the earlier Vlog Squad members was this guy, Dom. And I don't want it to seem like we are highlighting the abuser here, but I do think it's important to give a little bit of context just to understand kind of how he plays into all this and where he even comes from. And this guy was one of David's childhood friends from Illinois. He came with him to LA. And the best way that I can describe this guy is he's just gross. Don't you agree, Julie? Yeah, he was aptly named. I actually didn't realize until all of this came out that they were childhood friends. And that's how he got involved in the first place. Because whenever he was on the vlogs, I was always like confused how he got involved in all of this in the first place, because it just seemed so strange to me that he was this constant character. Right, exactly. And I guess a lot of it came from the fact that they were childhood friends. They were roommates when they first moved out to LA before David got big and things like that. And so a lot of his character that they would play in the vlog kind of really revolved around how he was just disgusting towards women. And it almost was unclear to the audience of how much of this was truth and how much of this was kind of just a dramatization for the vlogs and to kind of play up this character. But in this particular video that's being referenced in the article, the entire goal of the video was that Dom was going to try to have a fivesome, right? And so they were rallying these women and that was kind of what was being filmed. And so this woman, Hannah, who spoke to Business Insider explained how She was 20 at the time, and she didn't really fully understand the magnitude of David and the Vlog Squad's fame. So to all of her friends, it was a really big deal. And to her, she kind of thought it was this fun thing. She wasn't fully aware of what went on. And it wasn't until she got to the apartment where she felt uncomfortable from the second she was there, one, because of the power dynamic at play. And also she didn't fully understand what was happening. And I think what happens a lot with these videos is that because they're so short, there's a lot of pressure to kind of like pack in a lot of quote, good content. And so I can very much envision how it could feel like a really overwhelming environment to feel like your pressure to kind of perform for entertainment value when this is actually something that's happening to you and you're trying to kind of navigate the situation with 
quite frankly, a group of people that you don't even know who they are. Like it's very uncomfortable for this woman and the people she was with, I would imagine. Right. Definitely. I would have to imagine as well. And in the video, she talks about, you know, they were 20 at the time and alcohol was provided. I know this seems like kind of a nuanced detail, but it comes up later on. So in the article, it was referenced that allegedly Jeff Wittick and Todd Smith were the two that had bought the alcohol. Jeff denied that. We'll talk about that a little bit later on, but you'll see why that plays into all of it. But basically what ended up happening was she got incredibly drunk. Partially she was drinking herself. Partially the alcohol was forced on her and she was raped by Dom. And the thing that makes this video a little bit challenging to kind of understand is that some of these bits were filmed when everybody was present. Some of them weren't because basically the whole like quote joke around the video. And I know as I'm talking about it, we can't even believe that it's being like described or was even filmed as any sort of a joke was the fact that they kept on like checking in on the room to see if Dom was succeeding. Because remember the entire goal of the video was to see if Dom could quote succeed to get this fivesome. What ended up fucking happening was that he raped this woman. And she speaks in her experience about how she didn't even fully understand the scope of what had happened to her until a little bit later on when she really first, you know, called it rape herself. And it was in February, 2019, which was the next year after video came out when she texted Dom this very long text that, you know, I'm sure she had to muster up a lot of courage to even say, explaining how she felt that night, explaining how she felt taken advantage of. And he responded with a one-liner that said, okay, I respect your wishes. The video was down. So all you need to know about this guy's character is that one interaction. This girl was literally pouring her heart out to him and explaining all the things that made her uncomfortable, explaining how she felt so taken advantage of. She didn't feel in the right headspace. And that was kind of his response, which to anybody with the pulse, I think you can just understand his character from that, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, it was very disgusting in terms of like the aftermath of it and how he reacted, but like judging his character based on what he did in the first place, not surprising. No, not at all. And so this article comes out again. There's a lot more in that. It's very, very lengthy. And so the second thing that happened on March 16th after the Business Insider article came out was that David posted this two-minute, 30-second video called Let's Talk. And he posted it on his second channel. And he also was clearly in his podcast studio. He was talking to a microphone as opposed to talking directly into the camera. Again, I know these seem like nuanced details, but I do think that little elements like that do feed into public perception. And so it just kind of came across as less than authentic, in my opinion. And in the video, he apologized directly to Seth. He also acknowledged Dom and why they were no longer friends. He never directly addressed Hannah, the woman in the Business Insider article, but he said, you know, I'm sorry I've let you down. Things like this won't happen again. I've learned from my mistakes, and I also believe that actions speak a lot louder than words. You can take my word for it that I'm going to change, but I will also show you and I will prove to you that the mistakes I made before won't be happening again. I mean, I will just say this was a subpar video. Like it, the tone of the video and also the length, in my opinion, didn't match what was being alleged. And I mean, I think he now realizes that, but at the time, I think everybody, whether you're a David Dobrik fan or not, could just acknowledge that this video was not it, don't you think? Yeah, it was It was very general in a time where we were talking about topics that were super specific and he just failed to kind of own up to those and acknowledge those. And he knows that. It was one of those things where when he put that out, every single person was like, 
I can't believe he did this and I can't believe anybody else okayed this. Um, so you, you knew that there was going to have to be some sort of a follow-up to this because this was just, it wasn't it at all. Yeah. And I think, you know, your point about okaying is interesting because I think that that's a question that a lot of people have is like, who is he necessarily surrounded by? Because I mean, it's just clear David is the leader of this entire group. And sometimes when you're in that position, you're surrounded by a lot of yes people because a lot of your friends also end up working for you. And so I think there was a little bit of that at play. I mean, I would imagine that there had to have been and maybe not getting the best advice. Again, he should have known better, but also you look to your friends in that moment. And it just seemed like nobody really had their finger on the pulse in terms of what was like the quote, right thing to do. Yeah, exactly. So a few days after that on March 19th, his sponsors just start dropping left and right. So EA Sports, DoorDash, General Mills, Facebook, Audible, Dollar Shave Club, a lot. And just saying, you know, they will no longer be associating with David or the Block Squad. Okay, so a few days later, on March 21st, Jeff Wittick, who was a Vlog Squad member, comes out with his own video called My Truth. And if you remember, I had mentioned him earlier when we were talking about the article because in it, it was alleged that him and Todd Smith were the two that bought the alcohol for the underage women. And the author had gone to him for a comment and in it, he said, no, that never happened. Todd and I never bought the alcohol. However, Todd does love whiskey. And that quote had made its way into the article and he was really upset by that. So he basically posts this entire video discrediting the author, discrediting the article saying that, you know, he does not like his association and he does not like that that is being falsified, which like in and of itself, that one claim that he wants to clear saying that he did not buy it, like I guess is fair on its own, but it was the most tone deaf thing I had ever seen because the article was not about him. He was mentioned in one line and I get wanting to clear your name for something that you're saying you didn't do, but it was about this woman who was very bravely recounting her experience with rape. And here he is basically making this video, basically just discrediting the entire thing because he did not like the way that he was portrayed with this one line. And really that's what happened. The misalignment between what was mentioned and then his response was profound to me. Yeah, definitely. He clearly was harping on one thing about it and he was so angry and it was such a knee-jerk reaction for him to post that video. There was no thought involved. There was nothing. And also like, how do you respond to something in an article about yourself when you haven't actually read the article? Well, that's what we're going to get into because later on that day, Ethan and Trisha host an emergency live stream. Again, live stream. That's very, very different than a regular one because a live stream, like, you know, you can't cut anything out of their podcast frenemies and they interview Jeff. And when I tell you that I'm sure if you watch this video, you have the same reaction that we did because it was long. It was almost an hour long. And I was in pure shock that Jeff agreed to go on this because Within the first few minutes, it comes out, he never even read the fucking Business Insider article. He saw the one part that he was mentioned it. He read, quote, snippets, and he had a total knee-jerk reaction. And in it, Ethan and Trisha, who again, by no means do I consider them to be the moral compass on any of this stuff. And I even they said, like, we are not holier than thou in one of their most recent episodes. Like, we don't want to be regarded as that. But Ethan was saying, like, can you understand why what you, the way you reacted was completely not okay. And he did. And he kind of, I guess, came to terms with it. I, I will say that his appearance on the Frenemies podcast was the most shocking thing I personally saw coming out of this because 
it was the it was the worst thing he could have ever done. And the fact that he showed up so unprepared, and I understand some of the stuff can be associated with his injury that he's currently facing, that he has not really come forward about exactly what happened, and that's his total decision not to. But some of the way that he's speaking now, some of his stuttering and things like that, he has definitely you know, said are a result of his injury. And I get that. And I'm not taking away from that. However, you cannot come on to a podcast and talk so vehemently about the disgust of an author when he comes out, you've never even read the article. I mean, like it was, it was just terrible. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was pretty bad for Jeff to do. But what that also showed me by Jeff going on and doing this is like the lack of, um, like cohesiveness of David and his whole team during this time, because it's not like there was a set thing. Like let's take, let's do it this way. Let's have this strategy. Let's figure this out. Let's take it from here. Like it it, it kind of seemed like everybody was doing their own thing instead of checking in with each other. Whereas like if there was a check-in where there was like a set, I don't want to say plan because that seems too orchestrated, but if there was a set like strategy here Jeff never would have gone on frenemies and done this, specifically not on a live stream. Right. And not having read the article. I mean, that is like you, you're everything that you say after you say that you didn't read the article where this woman literally recounted her experience of being raped that night. Everything you say, I'm going to discount now because all of a sudden your credibility has been slashed in half. And by the way, I don't even think Jeff is a bad guy. Neither does Trisha, nor do a lot of people. I don't think Jeff is a bad person. I just think he was horrendously ill-informed and ill-prepared and he made an absolute fool out of himself on this on this live stream. And you're right. I guess the one thing that it did show is the fact that it definitely is true that nobody's allowing them to speak or not to speak. David clearly doesn't have a handle on who can say what or whether or not they can come out. And there was no sort of conversation going on and that was very evident. Right. So the next day on March 22nd, David announced that he would be stepping down from the board of Dispo, which is this photo sharing app that he was a part of. And he said he was stepping down as not to, quote, distract from the company's growth. Also, the venture capital firm Spark Capital announced that it was going to sever all ties with Dispo. So this was something, I mean, I'm sure you guys saw all over social media. There was a lot of marketing that went into play. So his role has completely been taken away. And I do not know, honestly, the future of what this company will hold. For anybody who is unfamiliar, this may ring a bell. Alexis Ohanian also was an investor in this. And it really did have a lot of press around the time of their investment and things like that, no? Yeah, definitely. It was it was a big deal. And also it had launched previously as just like a disposable camera app. And then there was a lot of capital behind it and a lot of buzz behind it. And it was kind of, I think, being geared up to be like the next big social media site. Like I think that was the trajectory for this. So yeah, there was a lot of hype and a lot of conversation around it. And the future of it, you're right, is very unclear now. So the day after that, Natalie, who for anybody who doesn't know, is David's assistant. And more so than that, really kind of like his business partner in a lot of things. They also are friends from Illinois. She posted an Instagram story, um, you know, kind of very generic, like black screen, white writing that basically said, I'm, you know, I'm processing this like the rest of you. I obviously stand with the victims, don't condone, et cetera, what you exactly kind of what you would envision. And I think, you know, her posting, there was a conversation around like where the blame lands and a lot of blame shifting, because I think, you know, how many who was actually involved during the editing process of these types of things. And so that's a conversation that I think has been floating and maybe was amplified a little more after Natalie's statement. Do you think that that's fair? 
Yeah, definitely. I think that is a huge piece of this also is just the blame shifting instead of every single person kind of sharing a piece of it. Right. I also want to mention that that same day, Carly and Aaron, who were former members of the Vlog Squad, uploaded roughly a three-minute video to YouTube titled Our Thoughts, where they basically said, you know, we weren't there that night. We had no idea of any of it, but clearly we stand with the victims. And um, Aaron saying, you know, having been a survivor myself, like, I can imagine what she is going through. And it was short, but I think to me, I thought, well done. And um, people wanted to hear from them. And I think that they delivered exactly what people kind of wanted to hear. Again, they were never... involved in this incident and nobody was accusing them of anything, but still they were peripherally involved. And I think that they felt a responsibility to speak on it. And I thought that what they said was like completely fair. Yeah, me too. So that same day is when David uploaded his second apology video. And this one was on his main vlog channel. And he also left comments on, and in it, you know, he was speaking directly to the camera, which I know, again, is a small detail, but I do think those types of things contribute to the way that they're received. I know Trisha actually spoke on this as well, and I really do. I think that there's something to be said for just like the way that small elements like that contribute to this feeling of authenticity or inauthenticity. And in it, you know, he apologized. He said, I'm so sorry. He said, I was completely disconnected from the fact that when people were invited to film with us, especially videos that relied on shock for views or whatever it was, that I was creating an unfair power dynamic. I did not know this before. He also spoke about, you know, how he, would be apologizing to some people separately off camera. My thing on this is like, it's really not mine or your apology to accept. You know what I mean? Like we were not wronged by him personally. And so I don't really think that it's our place whether or not to accept this. I will say, I thought it was far more sincere than the first video. I also will say that I very much recognize a lot of the criticism of people saying, you know, he only made this because he was dropped by his sponsors, which I think there probably is a certain level of validity to that. However, my personal opinion, just like viewing this kind of objectively, especially in comparison to the first one, is as far as apology videos go, I did think that it was sincere. However, again, everybody can feel however they want about this. Like everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And I guess I just feel like I wasn't personally wronged by him. So it's not on me whether to even like judge this video in any way. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's not our apology to accept. And I think that's always going to happen when you have an apology video. It's always going to be some sort of a catch-22 because the person doing the apologizing is always, A, going to be apologizing for something, which already you know puts them in a position where you're then deciding whether or not you're going to accept that apology or not. And I don't mean us. I mean anybody who was wronged is sitting there you know, deciding whether or not to accept that apology. And also most of the times when apology videos come out, it is because there was a result of a partnership ending or some other consequence that has forced them into this position. So I think that when you watch apology videos like this, you have to kind of, you know, separate the intent behind the sincerity of like what is being said. And again, like it's not necessarily our job to decide whether or not he did that well. Objectively, we can say an opinion, but it's not our place to decide whether or not that is enough from him or good enough of an attempt or, you know, whatever else you want to say about the, the video. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, after that, just actually, what day is today? The 29th. So three days ago, 
Jeff, after uploading that first video called My Truth, after the terrible appearance on Frenemies, uploaded this second video, a third of his appearances, basically just apologized for the way that he handled it. I actually thought this was also relatively sincere, all things considered. I don't think that he's a bad person either. And, uh, you know, he, he basically just said that he was totally out of line. Again, everybody can feel the way about that video that they do, but he recognized, I think, after being out of the moment, how not cool what he did was. Right. So that's kind of like the most recent update. I'm sure more things may happen. They may not. You know, obviously the podcast Frenemies has a lot to say on all this stuff, um, Trisha and Ethan. And I think they're definitely what a lot of people are following for kind of like the opinion, the shock value, the fact that there's, they say a lot of things that a lot of people maybe wouldn't say. Also, Trisha had direct involvement. But I mean, that is, I think, the most recent update. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen. David's obviously taking some time off. And one of the things that he addressed in his video is kind of the restructuring of the way they're going to do things and introducing an actual kind of HR component to his vlogs and to you know, the work environment he's created, which I think is an important step. I, I don't know what the future of David Dobrik looks like, but things are definitely going to be different now than they were before. But I think it's one of those things where you're kind of just going to have to see what happens. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I think of this also just like the greater context of YouTube and of content creators in general, just because I think that hopefully this, and unfortunately, but could be used as some form of a learning experience in terms of just not only consent, but also just in the way that these things go down. Because I think a lot of this stuff is done in a way that's almost kind of rogue and it leaves a lot of gray area for a lot of people to get hurt. And so hopefully that can shift, not just in the world of David, I'm just talking generally across content creators in general. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think a lot of them have a very lax environment because that is the type of environment that tends to breed content like this. Um, it's a lot of friends just making videos together and having fun. And then at a certain point when you get big, there's a shift from we're just doing this and posting shit on YouTube and having fun with it to we're now operating a business. And there has to be not only that shift in terms of monetary and in terms of the way you're viewed by the world, but also internal structure. For sure. It's it's a component that was ignored and I think no longer can be. And I also just want to make this point because I feel like a responsibility too, because we got a decent amount, not a ton, but a decent amount of DMs from women who were survivors of sexual assault, rape, who kind of said, you know, by no means are they fans of David Dobrik and clearly they want him to take accountability and continue to be held accountable for creating this type of environment. But a lot of women that reached out to us felt as though Dom, who was the person who committed the act of rape, is almost getting kind of like a pass because he's not as much in the limelight. And so I just want to make it be known that the two things can coexist. Like David should be and is being hopefully held accountable for creating a really toxic environment that breeded this power dynamic when people felt very uncomfortable to say no to things. And that is very real and should be happening. But let's not forget also that Dom, although not nearly as famous, not nearly as successful, raped somebody. And that's not something that I think can be slid under the rug. And so 
I just feel a responsibility to kind of highlight that because um, it seems that that sometimes can get lost in all of this. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that that is truly the most important component of this story and and just cannot be forgotten, especially for the sake of the woman that he assaulted and for survivors everywhere. Right, exactly. So as always, you know, we just have a lot of respect and send a lot of strength to that woman that came forward and any other women that have or will come forward because it's not an easy thing to do. And um, by doing that, I think they're opening the door for so many other women to feel comfortable to do the same. So we will keep you guys posted on all of this. And I know there's a lot. I mean, we can't include everything, but we try to do as much of a recap um, as we could. So I know we're all kind of operating at a different skill level when it comes to makeup. Like I have some friends who they do their makeup and it looks like they got it professionally done. I have others who know nothing about any products. And then I would say I'm somewhere in the middle, like by no means am I very skilled, but I think I can hold my own. And in terms of my everyday, I'm just doing mascara, lip gloss, and maybe a little bit of highlighter on my inner corner. So if I'm only using a few products, I need them to be excellent. And I've recently been very into the Thrive Cosmetics mascara which I'll tell you about in a second, but just in general, a note on the company. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive, which I just love knowing that I'm buying from a company that does that. And in terms of their mascara, so it's the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. You guys have seen that. It's the viral turquoise tube. I've saw it all over social media before I ever started using it. And it's a unique formula that creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. It's also super easy to remove. So it slides right off with warm water. It doesn't leave smudges. And the ingredients are really nourishing. So they support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. It really just gets the job done. Like you will see what I mean when you try it. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash CBC. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash CBC for 10% off your first order. So next thing we wanted to talk about is Machine Gun Kelly, Megan Fox, Travis Barker, and Kourtney Kardashian all being in Vegas for the UFC fight. I just want to say, I recognize this is not breaking news. Like It's just two couples that happen to be at the same fight that a lot of celebrities go to. But for some reason, the internet reacted in the same way we did, which is just like, we never want the footage of this to end. I can't even explain it to you guys, let alone myself, how deeply obsessed I am with them as a foursome. Right. And for what reason? I think it's because it's almost like Courtney is taking on this like punk rock vibe or something that clearly Megan and Machine Gun Kelly and Travis have all had. And there's just something really fun about not only watching the interactions, but also just envisioning what's going on behind the scenes. I feel like it's a new era of Courtney. I don't know what is happening. I know it's it's a lot of like symbiotic hotness going on. Like each of them is bringing out a different level of hot in each other. And it's like the four of them sitting there. Obviously, Travis and Machine Gun Kelly are friends. They all give off just like the same energy and vibe as a couple. Like I just I'm just obsessed. I can't again, I just can't explain it. I am obsessed. I would watch footage of obviously each individual couple for the rest of my life, but the four of them together is just, it's next level. 
It's so funny because I went to the actual UFC Instagram and they posted a photo of both of them. I think the first slide was Travis and Courtney and the second was Megan and MGK. And the caption was like, pop culture royalty in the house. And I just went to the comment section like just to see. And it is really like there are two types of people in this world because the comments were like, who the fuck cares? Who are these people? Why aren't you showing the fight? And I have no concept of anything to do with the fighting at all. Meanwhile, the people on this Instagram were so upset that they were showing like Travis and Megan and Courtney, et cetera. It was so funny when I looked at kind of like the contrast in that comment section. I was just about to say, did you ever in your life think that you would be stalking the comment section of a UFC official Instagram page? (laughs) No, it's like so not my wheelhouse. I'm such an idiot in that world. Yeah, same. I mean, you and I were saying that before we started recording and we were like, what was this even for? And I was like, they could have literally been there to watch a movie and I would have thought it was the greatest event of all time. Oh yeah, that's but that's the thing. It's like for us, the actual fight was so in the background just because fighting is not something I enjoy watching anyway. Meanwhile, for so many people to hear, I'm sure to hear us talk about a fight in the context of just the celebrity audience, they would be like, these girls are so fucking stupid. But you know what? Different strokes for different folks. <laughs> that was so <laughs> evil of you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I obviously agree. And by the way, it's not just us. This was all over TikTok, all over Instagram, all over Twitter, like- This was one of those things of the four of them being together that every single person was talking about. I think also there's a couple of other factors at play that I want to mention. The first is Megan recently started working with Maeve Riley, who, as you know, is a celebrity stylist, probably most famous for her work with Haley. And so there's really been an evolution, even as of late, in Megan Fox's style. And so I think in general, we just loved watching that and seeing what she was wearing and kind of seeing her whole... I don't know, her whole kind of aesthetic shift a little bit and maybe evolve. So that was present. And then also once you add in Courtney in this new, like I said, kind of, I don't know, punk rock-esque vibe to kind of match Travis's vibe. First of all, just circling back to my girl Maeve for a second, this is a Maeve Stan podcast account, everything. Like I cannot even explain to you the level of joy that I get A, from just the sheer fact that Megan and Maeve are working together and then B, seeing other people starting to pick up on it and dissect what that means for Megan and her style evolution. Like to see that manifest itself and like not just Haley and also on Megan who gets a little more edge than Haley does. Everything about this is like a match made in heaven for the two of them. And then you're right. When you add in the element of like, Courtney's kind of style evolution matching Travis's. There's so many components of just four people sitting at a UFC fight. There are so many components. And there's this woman, her handle is at Cara B Tweets. I'll put it in the description. And she tweeted, Courtney Kardashian is the Brad Pitt of adopting your partner style. And it was like a photo of her and Scott, her and Travis, her and Eunice, her and Luca, who as always was a rumor. And it is so spot on and so true. And I was just overwhelmed by all this. Also the video, because Matt James was sitting behind them with his friend. And there was like a video of Travis and Courtney. And so watching them just kind of like interact because we've seen more of Megan and Machine Gun Kelly than we have of Travis and Courtney. So watching it from that angle, I was like entranced. Same. There was one that Matt James posted. There was one that somebody else had posted of Travis like sucking on Courtney's fingers. There was the one of them, obviously the main one, which is them both sucking on lollipops, which is so Pete and Ariana of them. Like I just wanted to analyze and I know you are the exact same way. Like every single video, every single picture, every single angle 
I could not get enough. And also, I think that like we need to start to have a discussion of like what what is Courtney and Travis? Like, what do you think? I mean, I was just saying that to you earlier, and I don't really know. It's it's starting to overwhelm me in a way because, I mean, we weren't naive when this started because clearly we knew about their history. So the first time we saw this becoming a thing, I think we said, you know, this could be more serious than some of the other ones because clearly the fact that they're even making that decision to go from like such a deep friendship, family friend bond to something romantic shows they think there's potential here. And like the kids are involved and so many other factors are at play. I don't know. I swear to God, I said to you last night, I was like, are they like going to end up together? Am I being crazy? I don't know. And I don't think it's the craziest thing. And I actually have to say, I find myself really, really shocked by how much I like them together. I mean, I do too, especially because you know where I stand on the whole Scott Corny thing. Right. And it's, it is so hard to find yourself in the middle of that because there is something about the vibe that Courtney is giving me with Travis that I am just obsessed with. Like I, she just looks so happy, don't you think? And looks like she's having so much fun and he seems so good for her. But obviously in the back of my mind, we'll always have Scott. But then you start to compare maturity levels and you have Travis who seems so on par with Courtney right now, which seems crazy to say, just considering how different they look from an outside perspective. But it does seem like they're very on the same page right now. You saw the way he spoke about her and how he was saying like he really only wants to date women who are moms because they so get it. And obviously, Courtney has spoken about her kids at length. Like they're so on par with that. They seem like they're vibing really well together and they have such a chemistry. And you're looking at Scott, who's obviously going through something now, and you start to compare the maturity levels. And it's like, Maybe she does need to be with Travis. Maybe this is the thing that's absolutely best for her and we're holding on to something. Every time one of them ends up in a relationship where they seem happy, I start to let go of it a little bit. And then every time they break up in their relationships, I go back to the idea of Courtney and Scott. Oh, yeah. Listen, we would be having the opposite of this conversation after they break up, which is like, you know, it just shows how they're so destined to be together. Nothing can keep Scott and Courtney from each other. So I don't really know. I definitely can put myself into each like thing that's currently happening and really submerge myself in it and feel it. And I don't know, maybe I'm going to chalk that up to being a good thing, but I don't know, Julie, something feels different. She feels, yes, she looks happy, but the word that I'm going to choose to use is I feel that she seems very serene. It seems like she's very at peace and that's honestly all I could ever want for her. And I don't know exactly the root of that, like in terms of what elements of the relationship are bringing that out in her aside from whatever she's been doing in her own life. But it's definitely evident and it is definitely noticeable. Yeah, I think so too. It's crazy. Wow. I don't know, guys. Obviously, you know that I would do sick shit for some double date paparazzi shots. And I really do think we'll get those. Oh, I think we will too, especially based on the reaction that they got being together for just that one event. I I think and I hope that we're about to see a lot more of the four of them together. I just want to say, I would have never said, you know, this is a double date that I would love to see. It's not like, I obviously recognize that Travis and Machine Gun Kelly are friends, but I don't know. I never would have thought Megan Fox and Courtney. I just, I never really put the pieces together. And then once I saw a glimpse of it, I was like, okay, you know, we as like a collective whole, meaning like we as viewers of pop culture need this in a more serious, more concrete and potentially more frequent form. 
don't you feel like, and I can't even explain why I feel this way, but don't you feel like Kim is probably so jealous that Courtney's hanging out with Megan Fox? Like, I so get what you mean. Right. Like, I, I can just see, like, Courtney coming home and Kim being like, tell me everything about her. <laughs> that is a hilarious thing to envision. Right? Like, I cannot stop thinking about that. That is so funny because I think Megan Fox just has this element of no matter who you are, she's just cool. She's just hot and she's just cool. There's just something about her. I think she's the hottest person ever. I said this to you yesterday. But more than just that, I mean, I I got to know her personality a little bit when she did that podcast with Lala and Randall. And I very much understood the appeal there in terms of like one, her and his chemistry, but also I like the way that her mind works. I like the way that she was speaking. And I found like, I don't know, I saw a different side of her. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know, guys. We'll obviously see also just like as being a Kardashian fan, it's so funny, the tweets and the TikToks that are like, wow, a lot of lollipops for a girl that was throwing a fucking fit about that sugar. So true. Yeah. I think Courtney is is like um, selectively sugar intolerant she's selectively a lot of things when it comes to dietary restrictions, which is one of the funniest things about her. Yes. Anyway, so we'll keep you guys posted if there's anything else of that, but I just want you to know we were having the same reaction that a lot of the rest of the internet were having. And I'm not afraid to or embarrassed to admit it. So here we are. Yeah. Okay. So Demi Lovato's documentary, which is called Dancing with the Devil. It's a four-part docu-series. So far, two have been out. The first is called Losing Control. The second is Five Minutes from Death. I want to give a trigger warning here for addiction and overdose. It's weird. Like I'm hesitant to talk about this so much because I almost want to wait till all four are out, but you think we should just talk a little bit about these two? Yeah. I mean, I think that no amount of discussion that we have is going to do justice to watching the actual thing, but let's let's talk about the first two. Yeah. Well, I first just want to say that this was on YouTube, which is really good news for a lot of people because sometimes these are on Hulu or Netflix and some people don't have it. So this should be more accessible for a larger group of people, which makes me happy because obviously I just want everybody to watch this with us so we can like all talk about it together because I have to say we've seen a lot of celebrity documentaries at this point and not even to rank them because it's not about better or worse, but this is definitely one of the most vulnerable I have ever seen. And you even saw the reaction in her friends because obviously in the first shot, they're just showing setting up each person's individual interview. And you see the producers kind of ask a question and you see the shocked reaction of her friends or her assistants or whoever it is saying like, oh, we're talking about everything. Like we're talking about the heroin. We're talking about this. You know, they didn't know how deep they were allowed to go. And once they saw that under Demi's permission, let's say everything and we can cut out anything after the fact, it allowed for a far more open environment. Yes. And you're 100% right. There are a lot of documentaries where they've really delved into a lot of really difficult subject matter. It's really rare that you get a documentary from a celebrity that is so raw and so honest because a lot of the times I think what celebrities do when they put out documentaries is they try to hide a little bit because they're still trying to, quote, save face. So like they still have a career ahead of them and they still have things where they don't want to disappoint the audience or turn people off from listening to their music in the future. So like they'll hold back certain things and it creates – typically when that happens, it creates like – okay, this is a crazy thing, but like we don't have all of the details, so we can't be like fully emerged in it. 
With Demi, every single thing was completely on the table from the type of drug she was doing to how she was consuming it. So there was nothing that was left out. There was nothing that was left to the imagination. There was every single thing was as raw and honest as you could possibly get. And it was so, I don't want to use the word refreshing, but I think it made you connect on a completely different level than you ever have to a celebrity giving a documentary before. Oh, I think that actually, I know it feels weird to use the word refreshing because it's such a serious and dark subject matter, but I actually think that that's a really fair word because you were never wondering how much of this is the real story. It was very clearly the real story and it was being heard from so many different accounts. And like, I think her superpower is her vulnerability. And I, and listen, I don't want to recap it really, because I'm sure so many of you watched or will watch, but just some moments that I found to be really impactful was when her assistant was talking about the morning she found her and how it was kind of their sign that when the door was closed that she needed to knock. And so she knocks, there's no answer. And at this point, she's getting kind of frustrated because they had an appointment they had to get to. And it wasn't until she walked into the room and she said, you know, it was cold in there, it was dark. And she just assumed that she was a little bit drunk. And it wasn't until she got close to her and she saw that, you know, she was blue, she was unresponsive and kind of just the way that they took us through her assistant's next actions, calling the head of security, them calling 911. And even I thought this was such a really important moment when they spoke about how, you know, it obviously was ideal for there to not be sirens because they didn't want to cause commotion. They didn't want to cause a scene. But when the, her assistant was on the phone with 911 and you know, they said, okay, you may hear sirens. And her assistant said something to the effect of like, okay, but no sirens, right? And they said, no, this is an emergency. Kind of how in a split second, that idea of like, we need to protect the image shifted. And the goal was we need to keep her alive. And watching everybody kind of make that shift was really powerful. I don't know if you felt that same way. Oh, definitely. I mean, first of all, my heart broke for the assistant because I cannot imagine being the one to be the one to not only find her and have to you know, deal with that trauma, but also to be the one making those calls. You know, she said that she kind of snuck away to make the 911 call because she wasn't sure if that was even the right move because they didn't know whether or not, A, it was necessary and she was calling unnecessary attention to the situation or if she was saving her life. So, I mean, that part was just so, so powerful to watch and so crazy. And I really... I thought about the assistant throughout kind of the entire thing. And also the whole documentary was just so unbelievably well done. The people that they had speaking, her neurologist, her friends, her sober companion, every single person played such an integral role in the telling of the story. And I think that's something that happened with Demi is that, you know, after you heard about the overdose, there was a lot of rumors going around and, a lot of misunderstanding of what happened and kind of narratives that took on its own. And I think something we didn't realize was just how close to death she actually was. I mean, one of the the second episode is called Five Minutes to Death. And her doctor was saying she had five to 10 minutes to be found. Otherwise, she would not be alive right now. And I think that hearing those numbers and hearing those facts, it gives you a completely different view of the situation. Obviously, anytime you hear overdose, you know that it's a life-threatening situation. I just don't think the general public understood quite to the extent of what we were dealing with here. No. And that's why I thought that having the neurologist there, and by the way, not just alone, literally sitting next to her 
was a really unique and smart move because I don't want to use the word legitimize because that makes it sound like if it was just her talking about it, it would be delegitimate. That's not at all what I'm saying. But there was something about having that like medical perspective there that just added like a level of seriousness. I don't really know the right word, but it was definitely powerful, I think, to have him sitting there and kind of talking through the process of, you know, what happened the second that she went into the emergency room. And, you know, what I thought was another, I mean, there were so many elements, obviously we're not going to be able to touch on everything, but they were hanging out the night of the overdose because it was her friend and her creative director's birthday. And you saw that when the creative director was going to leave, Demi had said to her, you know, no, please stay, please stay. We can hang out. And she was like, no, my dogs are at home. My mom's at home. I have to get home. And when her creative director was retelling this, she said, you know, they pulled away and Demi was waving. And she's like, I just felt like something was a little bit weird. She said, and they were driving and a few miles down the road, they pulled over and she turned to the person in the passenger seat and said, was that bad? Like, should we have stayed? And they both had that gut feeling that something was off, but they went and again, like literally no guilt to them at all. But for her to be telling that, it sent a chill up your spine in a way. Oh yeah, definitely. That was... That was a really chilling part of it. And I don't know. The whole thing was – it was really, really like a lot to hear but I think so important because I also think that people have if, – if you're not somebody who has gone through addiction or knows someone or is close to someone who has suffered from addiction, I think that your view of it is oftentimes not accurate, which is no fault of your own. I think it's something that you cannot possibly understand unless you are in that situation or so closely affected by it. And I think something the documentary did such an excellent job of was taking you through just how severe of an illness addiction really is. Oh, beyond so, beyond so. And I also just want to quickly talk about the actual night because, you know, she was saying that previously her addiction was to cocaine and Xanax. And when she called her drug dealer that night, he didn't have those, but he had crack and heroin. And she said like, it's something she always wanted to try. She thought that she wouldn't overdose from them because she was smoking them instead of shooting it up, which in her mind, clearly there was like a very big distinction between the two. And again, I want to give a trigger warning for sexual assault. Not only that night, did she overdose from that cocktail? But also when she was waking up from this, she had flashes of her drug dealer being on top of her, which she clearly realized there was no world in which she was in a position to be able to give consent. So that was additionally traumatizing, you know, not not even to begin with the medical effects and talking about when she woke up that she suffered a heart attack. She had three strokes. She woke up in the ICU legally blind. And when her sister was sitting there saying that when she said to Demi, you know, I'm here. And Demi said, who is that? That was such a deep moment. Like you almost had to pause it for a second and try to envision what her sister might have, must have felt in that moment. Yeah. The, I mean, the sister aspect of it was so crazy because they also, you know, explained that parallel between the first time that Demi actually got sober, which was six years prior to her overdose one of the reasons that she got sober is because her parents told her she couldn't see her sister. She wouldn't be allowed to. So the parallel of first time getting sober because you're not being allowed to, to waking up from an overdose physically unable to was so insane. And, you know, the whole story with the drug dealer was obviously incredibly intense and incredibly vulnerable for her to share. And 
you know, she got into a lot of the specifics, like you said, of what drugs were being given. She had, when she had first relapsed was when her drug dealer had said to her the thing about only having, you know, crack and heroin in that night. You know, she had obviously gotten that same cocktail again, but one of the other things that he gave her was, quote, aftermarket pills, which were, were believed to be laced with fentanyl. And the fentanyl and the combination of that is, I believe, or what they're saying they believe is what caused that overdose most likely. So that also was a huge component of it because just in general, Demi aside, there is this huge rise of fentanyl overdoses and fentanyl being cut into drugs that is a massive, massive issue across the country. And I thought that Demi talking about that specific aspect of it also was raising a huge amount of awareness for an issue that was way bigger than Demi herself. Right. Well, exactly. Like even just something as small as the specificity with which she spoke about these things, I think was rare because a lot of times you see celebrities or people in the public eye talk about these experiences with a level of vagueness, which is fine. I understand why they're doing that, but I wasn't expecting to get this level of insight into the specifics. And I actually think that that was really important. You're right. Like aside from just wanting to understand her experience and the depth of that, but also to then contextualize that in terms of the bigger problem, which we know, I mean, fentanyl is a huge, huge issue that's happening right now. Um, and so you're so right that that, that was like a, almost a byproduct of her speaking about this. Right. You know what else was really interesting? The photos that they had flashed, which was like Demi's first time smoking heroin, Demi's first time smoking crack. Like she had taken those photos kind of as like, not as like a, here are the dangers, here's what you look like after. It was almost like a quote aesthetic that she was showing us. Like she had taken it as a, a photo to have as a memory. And then she was then putting it on screen as like a, here's what I was thinking at the time that I took this photo and here's how I ended up, which was also insane because I feel like that is something you specifically never get. No, that, that's what I'm saying. Every element of this is something that I really didn't expect to get because we haven't in the past. I mean, even, you know, she spoke a lot about like the idea of sobriety because she was sober for, I believe, six years prior to the overdose, right? Yeah. And she spoke about sobriety and also how that, like, you know, that and also her eating disorder. And the reason that I'm kind of conflating the two was because she did, because she was explaining how so much of her thinking was so black and white and how like the way that her mind worked as it applied not only to alcohol and drugs, but also as it applied to food that she deemed or was deemed as quote bad for her or for her body image, like what that did to her in terms of the mental impact. And I just found like the way that she spoke about those things separately, but also then the conflation was kind of unique. Yeah, I think so too. I think you oftentimes hear about people having um, multiple addictions or problems going on simultaneously and her explaining the impact that each one had on each other was a huge part of not only understanding the overdose or how she got there, but just understanding Demi in general. I think that was a huge takeaway from the documentary was just like this happened to her and this was a huge aspect of her. And this is kind of one of the main things you'll always think of when you think about Demi, but there is so much more to her in terms of understanding her and how she got to this place. And I think that the understanding of addiction and the eating disorder was just something that allowed you to really get the full scope of what was going on with her 
both mentally and in actuality? Oh, beyond so. I mean, she started it out by talking so much about, you know, her father and his own battles with addiction and how her biggest fear was him basically dying alone. And that's what happened to him. And she definitely set us up without giving like too much background info to the point where it took away from the current. I thought that the background info that she gave was very telling. Right. Because the huge, that was a huge piece of it was uh, her father and, you know, mental illness, kind of an addiction running in families. She spoke about her mom suffering from addiction. I, I just think that every element of this story is a domino effect. And when you hear it all together, it's kind of what we were talking about when we were talking about Brittany in a sense, where we were saying that like, you know, we had always examined the story. We had always known these aspects of Brittany. It wasn't until the New York Times documentary kind of put it into a thing where you could understand how each event affected the next event, which affected the next event, which led down to the path that she ended up on. And that was very similar to what Demi was saying was like, you kind of knew each of these aspects of her life. It wasn't until it was presented in this way where you understood the effect they all had on each other. Right, exactly. And and I thought that they did a really good job about showing that kind of seamlessly. And also the the choice of people that they had speak were crucial in painting that picture and filling in those pieces. Cause like nobody can speak for her sister the way that her sister can speak for herself. You know, nobody can speak for her mom or her stepdad or her former assistant, Jordan, whoever the person was, I felt that they added such a perspective. And even one of her best friends who was her former sober companion, that perspective was one that was needed. Like there was just a lot happening here. I'm sure if you watched it, you would agree with us. I can't imagine somebody watching this and not feeling a similar way that we did. Yeah, I so agree. I do just want to say, you know, she's recently spoke, it's almost been three years after the overdose about how she's quote, California sober, meaning, you know, that she's smoking weed and drinking in moderation, which is obviously, as we know, something that most people with uh, a history of substance abuse typically do not do or advise not to do. And She said, quote, I've learned that it doesn't work for me to say that I'm never going to do this again. I know I'm done with the stuff that's going to kill me, right? Saying that swearing off alcohol and marijuana entirely is, quote, setting myself up for failure because I'm such a black and white thinker. Quote, I had it drilled into my head for so many years that one drink was equivalent to a crack pipe. I know that a lot of people have a lot of thoughts on that. And I know that it's kind of inconsistent with what a lot of people and medical professionals say. I just like am never going to give my opinion on how somebody else is choosing to deal with uh, their their addiction. Like it's just not, I recognize that it's not the norm, but I, it's, I'm just not going to give a comment on that. Yeah, no, definitely not our place. I just will say like, I hope that it is actually what's working for her. And if it does, then whatever she needs to do to stay on the path that she needs to be on in order to stay alive and stay healthy, if that's what's working for her, then that's what she needs to be doing. Yeah. I also just wanted to say that she spoke about how for so much of her life, the goal was stability and everybody kind of drilled that into her. And she was saying like for her, having the number one goal stability isn't necessarily the best thing that she would rather the goal be serenity and peace and growing within the chaos. And I thought that that was a, a kind of cool perspective to have because I think that that could be a little bit liberating or a little bit helpful for other people that are struggling because stability can maybe feel more of an overwhelming idea than inner serenity and inner peace. Um, And she spoke, you know, the other thing that I just wanted to mention was she spoke about the survivor's guilt that she faced after that. And 
And a lot of that, I think from what she said was kind of prompted by really nasty, disgusting comments on the internet saying that she deserved to die and that, you know, why did it have to be her who was saved? And clearly things that I don't think most of us could fathom ever saying to another human being, but that did impact her. And she was open about saying like, it took her a while to get over that. And I just think, I don't know if I was necessarily anticipating her to share that. So when she did, I definitely had a moment of like, wow, this, I can tell this is about to go deep because that was in the preview. Yeah. I think clearly what is working for her is the ability to be honest. And I think even if that means she, even if that means that she maybe messes up or falls off her recovery or is very transparently working on getting better and isn't going to be perfect all the time. I think that her honesty and transparency with her fans and her audience is something that is a valuable tool for her in order to get better. Because obviously the thing with eating disorders, mental health, sobriety, everything that she's suffering through it's not like you just survive something traumatic and it all goes away. Like it is going to be a constant battle that she's going to be fighting for the rest of her life. And I think the thing now is her just navigating how to do that in a way that keeps her on a path that is right for her and that is healthy for her. So I think that this is probably extremely, extremely healing for her and for it to be all be on the table, for there to be no questions, for there to be nobody, you know, DMing her being like, not that this necessarily happens, but DMing her or asking her all of these questions about the specifics of what happened. Like she is putting it out there for everybody. She is healing alongside while telling her story. She's hopefully gotten to a place where she feels telling her story is in the right time. I just think all of this contributes to a larger factor. And I don't think that Demi is somebody who is trying to be like, I'm on the other side of this and everything's okay now. I think that she's very much trying to paint the picture of like, this is a journey and I'm just taking you on it with me. Absolutely. And and I guess that I will just say, you know, you saw this in her conversation with Michael Ratner, but she, I think a big thing now is she really like trusts the people around her and she trusts that her team has her best interest at heart. And that was really evident. Yeah. Let's talk about baby making for a second, because It's really not as simple as it's made out to be, meaning there's just factually a lack of knowledge surrounding how to get pregnant. And kind of, you know, for many of us, we spend our lives trying to prevent unwanted pregnancy that when you do want to conceive, there's almost a lack of understanding and resources, which is why I want to introduce you to Free to Fertility. Free to Fertility is the only one-stop shop that makes it easier to make a baby with a set of solutions for everything from egg and sperm health to ovulation tracking to conception aid. And basically what Frida is doing is simplifying the journey to parenthood with products that help you go from trying to making a baby. And their products are innovative, easy to use, accessible, from ovulation prediction to at-home insemination kits. They're kind of revolutionizing the conception aid game with the at-home insemination kit, which is almost, you can think of it as like a modern, effective solution to the turkey baster. This is baby making simplified. Find Frida Fertility on Amazon, Target, and select CVS near you. So as I'm sure most of you saw, on Friday, Lil Nas X dropped the single and the music video for his song, Montero, Call Me By Your Name. I mean, this took over the internet in so many ways. You know my opinion on this. I absolutely love this. I think that he is really, really revolutionizing 
the industry in a very brilliant way. I mean, I am such a Lil Nas X fan. I think every single component of him is just amazing and talented and brilliant. I love his music. I loved the music video, obviously. My favorite thing by far about Lil Nas X is his just social media presence. And somebody had tweeted and they were basically saying, because obviously, of course, as expected, he got so much backlash for the video. And somebody was saying like all of these attempts to get under Lil Nas X's skin and make all these comments at him and kind of tear him apart are never going to work because Lil Nas X is quite literally a child of the internet. Like he is the biggest troll in the best way on the internet. So there's just nothing that you're going to be able to do that's going to be able to out troll him. And I think in between Lil Nas X's projects, his ability to maintain relevancy aside from just his music has so much to do with his presence on social media. He is always part of the conversation in terms of funny tweets, funny clapbacks, content that he's posting, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. So like, it's just so much fun to watch him not only grow as an artist, but just grow as a figure. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I think that also just his increasing comfort within himself and his like unapologetic expression is something that we've really seen evolve. I mean, so clearly, and I, I love watching it. I mean, I want to just he tweeted and he said, I spent my entire teenage years hating myself because of the shit y'all preach would happen to me because I was gay. So I hope you are mad, stay mad, feel the same anger you teach us to have towards ourselves. That's a pretty powerful statement. Yes, delivered in the form of a tweet that was clearly a response to a lot of the criticism. But I think that that's a pretty powerful statement. I also think his note that he wrote, dear 14-year-old Montero, I wrote a song with our name in it. It's about a guy I met last summer. I know we promised to never come out publicly. I know we promised to never be that type of gay person. I know we promised to die with a secret, but this will open doors for many other queer people to simply exist. You see, this is very scary for me. People will be angry. They will say I'm pushing an agenda, but the truth is I am. The agenda to make people stay the fuck out of other people's lives and stop dictating who they should be, sending you love from the future. I just think that the impact that Lil Nas X is able to have and going to be able to have in the future and and down the road is something that I don't think he's able to fully comprehend yet. I don't think we're able to fully comprehend yet, but I think it is something that is going to be like revolutionary. I really do. I think he has such an impact and such a presence and I don't even think we fully understand the scope of it yet. I feel the same way. And I I am excited for him to continue to just follow on this journey and allow us all with him. Yeah, me too. This is like so not a big deal. I just wanted to mention it because I'm sure you all saw because I feel like it just is such a perfect compliment to our conversation last week. So I'm sure you guys saw A-Rod posting with him and J-Lo holding the goalie gummies. It's like, it's official. We're part of the goalie gummy family. This is like not a big deal. The reason I just want to mention it is because remember how last week and the week before and probably the week before that we were just saying like, this is a couple that operates as a business. This is the most perfect example of that. And I saw a lot of tweets that were like, oh, see, of course they couldn't break up. They had a new business announcement coming out. It's just so clear. It's clearer than day. Um, The intersection between, you know, love, potential love, which I do think is real on a certain level. And then also like business and financial presence that is so clearly interwoven between any, everything that they do. And I guess I shouldn't have this reaction of like inauthenticity of their relationship based on a business deal that a lot of other people do collaborate on, but it is just so glaring here. Yeah. 
I think that timeline-wise, had this been a month down the road, we would have been like, okay, they're just doing this partnership. They're clearly back together. Let them do their thing. Like, this was so soon after all of the drama and the supposed breakup and the fact that you were hearing like, okay, well, they're working on things. They're not 100% back together. Now they're in the Dominican Republic trying to work it out, take it, take it, see where it goes. Like, and then all of a sudden, bam, you have a brand deal. It's, it's just, it's too, it's too classic, honestly. It's just too classic. That's what it is. It really, and you know, the thing is, I guess I have to give them respect because they don't even pretend. No, I, you can never, <laughs> you can never be mad about somebody doing something so glaring. They are not trying to hide this shit at all. And you know what? Good for them. Exactly. Like, how can we be mad when uh, that's, they're, they're, it's really in our faces. And so on that level, I guess, good for them. Yeah. For my own sanity, I like I love them together. I would love them to stay together. It's just it, it's funny how my perception on the whole relationship has shifted over the last few years. Is all oh, absolutely. But you know what? You'll forget about it, and it'll it'll shift back. I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will. Okay, let's take a break and come back with Kardashians. Yes. Okay, so I want to talk cookware for a second because I haven't told you guys about this company and. I recently tried their products and I fully understand the hype now. So they're called Great Jones and they make really high quality, thoughtfully designed cookware that also happens to be beautiful. Like I know it's kind of a weird way to describe cookware, but you'll see what I mean when you go on the website. In terms of colors, they have your classic black and white, but they also have pinks, greens, yellows, blues, just like really vibrant, fun colors. And everything is non-toxic. So they have, you know, Dutch oven, ceramic dishes, non-stick sheet pans. Everything is non-toxic to me. That's huge. And we all know, like, I'm not the biggest cook, but I have my staples. And I got originally from them the Fry Family, which is the eight and 10 inch ceramic nonstick pans. And they're just great. I got them in the white because that matches the best with my kitchen. I love cooking on them. And I also, I know, again, it sounds kind of weird, but I love the way they look in my kitchen. And the thing is, once you get these, you're going to want to get them for your friends. So they make incredible gifts for weddings, housewarming parties, birthdays, whatever occasion you need. It's a great gift. Upgrade your kitchen and replace those old rusted hand-me-downs with bold, beautiful, long-lasting pieces from Great Jones. Get started today at greatjones.com and get an extra 15% off your first order with promo code CBC. That's greatjones.com, promo code CBC. So Andy Cohen has this new series. It's called For Real, the story of reality TV. And in this first episode, the last like 15 or so minutes were the Kardashians. It was Kim, Chloe, Courtney, and Chris, which we'll talk about in a second. But I just want to say in general, I was loving this. Like if you were a big reality television watcher 10 or so years ago, this is for you because they were taking us down memory lane. We we're talking about Girls Next Door, Hogan Knows Best, Breaking Bonaduce, like you know, the Osbournes, really just the OG of reality television, the simple life. And I really, it was to the point, Julian Isabel always said like nostalgia hurts. And it was that kind of feeling. It was like, it was literally painful to relive this because I so vividly remembered exactly where I was. I remember thinking Nick Hogan was the hottest guy. I remember thinking just Kendra that like, I only wanted to look like Kendra when I grew up, like just so many things that were happening. And it was bringing me back in a way that I can't even describe in words, the way that I was feeling. No, nostalgia literally hurts. And something I forgot about was because I'm not that into reality TV anymore. And I think this, what happened was old reality TV was just so fucking good that everything else to me just pales in comparison. Because if you're not giving me Girls Next Door, then I don't want it. 
it, it, it's true. I mean, there's nothing like those OG days. And even to hear them talk about how like Bridget from Girls Next Door would literally have a stopwatch and she would track how much camera time Kendra was getting because it was the issue between the three of them that was happening behind the scenes that Kendra was just the most magnetic and the one that made the best camera presence. And so like all these things that you didn't know were going on, the fact that they were all not friends at all, which we know a little bit from Holly's book and things have come out, but just to hear them talk about it almost in like a e true Hollywood story format, I was living for this. Like really, this is this is my kind of series. Oh yeah, me too. But in the Kardashians part, you know, it was brief, but it was just fun to hear them talk about it and the, how... I think it was Chloe who said that in the beginning, the network said, don't get too comfortable. You're just like a replacement for the low hands. And so you saw there was like a smirk on Kim's face, almost a validation, because I don't think that she's necessarily on the best terms with Lindsay. But just to watch, um, you know, clearly the evolution and how they didn't expect that this was going to be more than a season, more than two seasons, and how they were so underestimated, both by everyone around them, but also by themselves and just what it's become. And there was a moment where they were talking about the editing process and they were saying, you know, they each watch it multiple times, they give notes. And Andy asked Courtney, like, do you think you've gotten a bad edit? And she said, yes. And Chloe said, but you help edit it. And Andy's like, yeah, that was what I was about to ask. And she said, well, I know that Kylie feels the same way. It's not just me, which was interesting because I had to wonder, you know, is that one of the reasons that Kylie is pretty much seemingly so unwilling to be filmed? Is it because she doesn't like the way that she's portrayed on the show? Like it would just answer potentially some questions that we have. Yeah, that is, it is really interesting when they talk about it, because I would also like to hear like, what specifically do they think could have been done differently? Like, I want them to take me through. I want Courtney to go through the scenes where she feels she was portrayed poorly and tell me what the editing should have been in her mind or how she could have been portrayed better. Yeah. I mean, I would have, it was short. I would have been able to watch an entire thing that just went through particular specific examples. They weren't going to do it, but I would have loved that. Yeah, of course, because we're the only like psychos that would have wanted that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they said how it was always very important to them that it was family over everything, that no matter what the topic was about during the episode, they wanted it to end with the very, what we call full house moments. So they did that. And that's something we brought up a lot, especially when we were recapping the old episodes. But just to see how intentional it really was, I thought was fun to hear. Yeah, definitely. Also, in the description for, I guess it's episode four of this season of Kardashians, it says, Kim and Chloe are curious about Courtney's new friend, Addison Ray. I mean, I I'm cannot off. wait for that episode. I cannot wait for that. Thrilled. I, I feel like, well, what's funny about the way that the descriptions are coming out, because this has happened in the past, because like the Wikipedia page will release the descriptions, I think, like for two weeks out. So now they're like kind of becoming news, like the what the description for the episode is going to be like this was on TikTok room. But we all obviously still have so many questions about how they became friends and what the evolution of the friendship was like. Like I think you and I specifically, but a lot of other people have kind of gotten to the point where it's like, okay, we can accept their friendship. We kind of get it. We see what they have in common, but we're still missing that piece of the puzzle, which is like, how did we even get here? And I'm really, really hoping that that episode fills in all of those blanks. Me too. I mean, we do know that part of it was David Dobrik, which who knows how much that will be included now. Of course, but that's still a giant leap. Of course, I know. I mean, I, I can't wait to see that. I remember when we saw that they were filming together, we were really excited to watch that go down. Yeah. Also, we never discussed the Kendall and Kylie drunk get ready with me. I can't believe we didn't. 
I think it's because there were so many other things going on and it was like at a weird time. I don't give a shit how stupid it was. If you're listening to this section, hopefully everybody judgmental has been gone by now. You guys, I loved that video. I could have watched that for hours on end. Hours. It brought out such a fun side of both of them. And something that we always speak about is that we feel like we've kind of lost that, not lost the dynamic, but lost the ability to really be a part of the Kendall-Kylie dynamic. And this video really brought it back in the absolute number one best way possible. I guess in general, sometimes we feel like what we see of them at times is overly curated because it is, I guess, specifically Kylie. So this it almost got to see like we were witnessing something more behind the scenes in a way. Yeah. And I also loved that this one came out so soon after the Haley and Kendall one, because I thought you just saw such a fun side of Kendall, which you don't often get to see. Right. Like clearly, I mean, we all know that it was product placement and it, you know, they were doing this around her tequila, which I get and I understand, but it was a fun way to do it. And you know, we forget about the Kendall and Kylie of it all. We really do. And and at times, you know, we associate Kylie almost like not with the older siblings, but I think the motherhood element of it kind of drew a line in the sand just in terms of like, I don't know if you want to say their relationship with each other or whatever the deal is, but even when Kendall sometimes talks about it, she'll repeatedly say, I'm the only one, I'm the only one. And so it just draws them further apart, even though it shouldn't, but in our minds, I sometimes feel like it does. So to bring them back to almost this like juvenile behavior, I thought was just entertaining. Yeah, it really was. Also, I have to say, after I watched that one, I went back and watched the other one, which was the Chloe and Kylie drunk get ready with me. And I don't know if I made this point to you, But in that video, obviously it was, what, two years ago, Sophia comes. And at the time, we thought that, like, they all had this really fun dynamic because Sophia and Kylie were such good friends. And Chloe and Sophia kind of have this, like, shady, but at the time we assumed, like, kind of funny, fun back and forth. When you rewatch it, I just think that Chloe didn't like Sophia. You did say that, but I didn't go back to rewatch it. What made you think that? Because that's not at all the vibe that we got in the most recent episode. It's just a little bit uncomfortable. Like when Sophia comes, like they're on the phone and I can't tell you exactly what she said because I don't remember it, but Chloe kind of like snaps at her a little bit and you at the time thought it was like in a funny, playful way. And then looking back on it post breakup, you're like, I don't know if that was as like cute and funny as we thought it was at the time. Like you have to go back and watch it because I think your perspective on it will change a little bit. I have to go back and watch it. And then next week we can report back. Actually, why doesn't everyone do that? I agree. I love a group activity. (laughs) We can all talk about it together. I I can't even like give an opinion because I have to rewatch it. Yeah. Anything else you would like to mention? No, I had a great time today, kid. I did too, honestly. I always have fun. (laughs) I mean, same. (laughs) Well, we love you guys so much. We'll see you on Thursday night for our Kardashian episode. And Isabel and I will see you on Friday for Bravo. We love you guys. Thank you as always for listening. Welcome to Nada Yada Island. This season on Nada Yada Island. When we were new, they spoiled me. They even gave me a phone. But then, it's like I didn't exist. Don't take yada yada from your wireless carrier. Now with Metro, get that new customer feeling again and again. Introducing Metro Flex. Free 5G phones when you join, same deals as new customers when you stay. Only at Metro by T-Mobile.
Just bring your number and ID and sign up for an eligible plan. After 12 months, trade in and get our best deals on select devices. 